from Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, which is on um, page 785 of the Church Bibles. So that's page 785, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 20. I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbours drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come round to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. Our Father, we, we believe that uh, each part of your word is breathed out by you and is useful uh, for all that we need. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help us tonight to understand this part of your word and that you might use it for your glory's sake, uh, that you might change our hearts to love you and love your Son and follow him more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why does evil seem to go unpunished? It's a big question 
as we look at the evil in the world and we think, look, God, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you stop it? This is the question that we have posed to us in this little book of the Old Testament of Habakkuk. Now, Andy started us off last week. Let me just recap what we saw in chapter 1. We find ourselves overhearing this debate between the prophet Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk's been looking around Jerusalem and Judah, and he sees amongst God's people complete disregard for God's law. He expresses that in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, The law is paralysed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk complains to God. He says, How long do we have to wait, God? before you do something about this. Chapter 1, verse 3 puts it really boldly to God. Why do you idly look at wrong? Now Habakkuk perhaps has in mind that God will bring about some great revival or reformation, that God's people might repent and turn to him in faith. But that's not what's going to happen. The answer he gets from God to his complaint is quite the surprise to him. God says, look, I am already doing something about it, Habakkuk. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And they're going to march across the Assyrian Empire, and they're going to conquer Judah and Jerusalem, and they're going to carry off its people into captivity. That's God's answer to Judah's wickedness. It's not reformation, it's not revival, it's a reckoning. And the wheels are already in motion. He's already stirred up Babylon to do it. And so we get Habakkuk's second complaint, which is basically this. What? What are you talking about, God? He says. How can you use an even more corrupt and wicked nation like Babylon to punish your people for their wickedness? If that happens, then we, the the faithful few among your people, well, we'll get wiped out as well. We'll have nothing left. And Babylon will have this great empire, and yet again, the wicked will prosper because of their wickedness. How is that right, God? Surely not, God. How can that be the thing that you want to do? And we left last week with Habakkuk standing on the walls of the city, chapter 2, verse 1, where our reading began this evening. And he's watching to see if the coming armies will turn back, but more importantly, he's waiting to have his argument with God continue. What will God say to his confused and complaining prophet? And then how will Habakkuk respond? Well, we get his response next week, but we're going to hear what God says the answer is in chapter 2, verse 2 to 20. It's really all of verse, uh, chapter 2 to 20, uh, but we're going to break it into three parts, uh, which are on the back of uh, the service sheet. So answer part 1, verse 2 to 5. The righteous will live by faith. Actually, before God gives his answer, uh, he wants to make really clear who his answer is for. It's not just for Habakkuk, and it's not just for Judah. It's to reach through the world and through the centuries to us in Edinburgh today. Look at verse 2. This is how we know this. He tells Habakkuk to write it down. 
write it down, put it on record, and then messengers can run it out to others. And notice the reason for it to be recorded in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Write it down because, well, you're not going to see the fulfilment of the answer in your day, Habakkuk. You will only see part and the rest is for the future. My people will have to wait a while until I'm ready to do all that I'm about to tell you. So make a note. Now what is the answer? Verse 4 to 5. God says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Now, one of the things that's really quite challenging about the prophetic books is working out who's speaking, who's being spoken to, and when does it change. Well, verse 4 is a good example of that. There are two types of person in verse 4 and verse 5. The first line of verse 4, God's speaking of Babylon, or more specifically, the king of Babylon, this puffed-up, wicked man who comes to conquer. We'll come back to him later on. God's got a lot more to say about him. But the second person in verse 4 is the righteous one. What does God say to the righteous? He says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. How can the righteous, that's not all of Judah, but those like Habakkuk who are true to God in Judah, how can they live in the face of the coming judgment? Answer, by faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. In effect, God says to Habakkuk, those who trust me will live. It will take patient trust for the people of God to see God's plan to both judge and save unfold. They will need to keep living in faithfulness to God as they wait for it. Now we need to just spend a bit of time exploring what this means. So Habakkuk's been told in verse 3 that the vision will be fulfilled, but in the future. And the Bible as a whole actually gives us this vision. It gives three horizons for that fulfilment. Now the other day, um, as a family, we went to the Royal Yacht Britannia, I know that's the kind of people we are, exciting, um, isn't it? Um, But on the rear deck of the yacht, they've got one of these telescopes that's mounted on a pole. You see them sometimes at the seaside, uh, the ones that cost 20p, and you never have 20p um, to use them. But that one's actually free, so you can use it. There's a little tip for you. And you can use it, of course, to look at things that are really close to you, if you point it down. And then you can tilt it up, and you you can look at things a a little bit further out, maybe on the other side of the harbour. 
And then if you tilt it up a little bit further, you can see right out to uh, the opposite shore. Well, imagine that you're standing with Habakkuk, and you've both got one of these telescopes, and it looks not through space, but through time. It looks forwards in time, from where he is into the future. So you look through, and your focus is drawn, first of all, to the immediate horizon, to what's closest, to Babylon. The faithful will have to wait just a short time to see God bring Babylon to its knees and to see God save a remnant of the faithful through it. It will come in time, but they're going to need to be patient. They're going to need to wait about 70 years or so, in fact, to see it. Some will trust God and they will see that they come. That's horizon number one. But then tilt your telescope up, scan up to the next horizon, and this is fulfilled to the faithful in regard to the coming of Christ. So the zoom of our telescope now extends beyond Habakkuk's day to about 600 years later, and there we will see God go to work in exactly the same pattern. We will see the righteous one, We will see the righteous one, the Lord Jesus, who will be punished and killed. And once again, the instrument will be a wicked Gentile enemy. Not Babylon, but Rome. And again, at that time, we'll wonder, well, is this right? We'll wonder, how can God use wickedness like this to achieve his purposes? But Jesus will face God's judgment, not for his sins, but for the sins of his people. Yet he will trust God, and so he will live. So Jesus is the truly righteous one who lives by faith. And consequently, says Paul in Romans and Galatians, where he quotes this verse... So then, we who are in Christ, that is, we who've been granted faith in Christ, we shall also live. As this verse becomes really critical for Paul as he understands the gospel. See, Paul understands from Habakkuk that salvation has to be by faith alone. Because when God's judgment comes and it sweeps away all the wicked... All humanity will be caught up in that judgment. Because, just as it was in Habakkuk's day, none of us live according to God's law. See, God doesn't say to Habakkuk, look, the righteous shall live by their law-keeping. There's perhaps a hint that Habakkuk thinks that if they only kept the law, perhaps they would be spared. Perhaps in chapter 1, verse 4. But that's not how some will be spared God's coming judgment, because no one's kept the law. No, it's not that. It must be, by faith alone, they shall live. By trusting God and his promises. 
So understanding this, as Paul understands this, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. We shall be declared righteous, not by works of the law, but by faith alone. And so on that basis, the wrath of God will no longer be upon us, and we will be granted eternal life in Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. It becomes the slogan for the Christian church. That's horizon number two. Third, we zoom further forwards in time and we look at the furthest horizon. This verse is fulfilled finally as we patiently wait for the Lord Jesus Christ to come again. And this is picked up by the writer to the Hebrews. And I want us to look at that together. So if you've got a Bible, keep a hand in Habakkuk chapter 2 and flick forward to Hebrews chapter 10. It's right at the back of the New Testament. Just give you a page number, page 1007 uh, in the Church Bible. Now the writer to the Hebrews, he writes to a people who are suffering under evil. So they're asking the same question, how will God let this evil go unpunished? How long until he fixes it? They're suffering under the evils of persecution, they're living in a world that's hostile to God, and this is what he says, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Yet, uh, for yet a, a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. See, we too are to have the faith in the same way that Habakkuk is to have faith. Faith that looks beyond the horizon of our lives, that clings to the promises of God to save us. Faith that, as the writer to the Hebrews puts just in a few verses' time in chapter 11, that is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. See, we too, just as Habakkuk did in his day, we too need to patiently wait for God's final answer to unpunished evil. It will be revealed. We need to wait for it. But actually, look again at the text of verse 37. It's not wait for it here. It's wait for him. In a little while, and the coming one will come. And will not delay. He is coming. The Lord Jesus is coming. And he may seem slow to us, but he will surely come. He will not delay. And when he comes, he will finally deal with wickedness and he will rescue the faithful, those whose faith is in him. That's the first part of God's answer to Habakkuk. Why does evil seem to go unpunished? Well, he says, trust me. 
The righteous will live by faith. I flip back to Habakkuk chapter 2, page 785. Now I know we only looked at sort of half of a verse there. It's the verse that the New Testament picks up. It's important for us to, to grasp that. But there's a second part to God's answer and the rest of Habakkuk 2 speaks about this answer. It's that the wicked will be punished as they deserve. We're thinking, well, what of, what of the wicked? What of Babylon? What of her king? Well, let's return to the first part of verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. It doesn't come across in the ESV translation we have here, but the language here speaks of someone who has swollen appetites. It's someone who's kind of eating everything in sight. They're consuming everything around them like a glutton. And that thought is continued in verse 5. He's pictured there as being a drunkard on wine. He's insatiable in his appetites for more. He roams across the face of the earth looking to consume more and more nations and peoples into his empire. His greed is as wide as Sheol as the grave. Like death, he never has enough. What a description that is. God tells Habakkuk here, look, don't believe for a minute that I don't know what he's like. I see his arrogance, his self-importance. I see his greed and his wickedness. I see what he's doing. And there's just the beginning of a hint here that he will not get away with it. Look again at verse 5. Wine is a traitor, says God. Now, wine gives confidence, doesn't it? It lets you believe that you can do anything uh, that you want to do. It makes you feel strong, makes you feel invincible. Drink too much, though, and it turns on you. It's a traitor. You begin to stagger and you fall and you vomit on yourself and you become paralysed and eventually it ruins your life. That's God's point here. What currently makes the king of Babylon feel so strong and so powerful will eventually destroy him. This is what's happening in the world, says God. Don't think that he'll get away with it. The appetites of Babylon's king to build his empire, so insatiable for more and more conquest, it will cause him to overreach. The very thing that he enjoys so much will ruin him in the end. He will reap what he sows. And that very much is the theme of the next 14 verses. In verse 6, God speaks to Habakkuk as if he is the conquered people's And together they kind of chant and they they taunt uh, Babylon. There's these five judgments, five woes uh, upon them. If you just look at the hand, I've just tried to summarise them uh, for you there. In each case, the point is that the Lord sees the wicked that Babylon has done. He's made a record of it. And in time, he will turn that wickedness back upon them. In perfect justice. Now the first three three woes uh, increase as they go through. The first is against the king, against an individual. The second against his house. And the third against his city. So briefly we'll skim our way through them. Verse 6 to 8. For gaining wealth by plunder, 
you will be plundered. This is how it works with conquest. You plunder the people that you conquer. And once you've conquered them, you exact unjust taxes and and bribes from the people. But the prophecy here is that this stealing of their wealth will lead to resentment and then rebellion in the end. And that eventually the wealth will return to the victims. Verse 7. Will not your debtors suddenly arise, and those who awake will make you, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you've plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. And it continues, the next woe, verse 9 to 11. For building a house at others' expense, your house will be brought down. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, took that plundered wealth and he built his palaces. A place where he thought he would be safe, where his dynasty would be safe through the ages. But his life isn't safe at all. It is forfeit, verse 10. And the very building materials themselves, they cry out for justice against him, verse 11. The great palace of Babylon will come crashing down in the end, and the house, the dynasty of Nebuchadnezzar, will fall. And this is what happens. Verse 12 to 14, woe number three. For founding a city on the backs of others, you will lose it all. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labour merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? The great cities of the empire, they were built on slave labour. The captured peoples were put to work. And that's actually true of Babylon, isn't it? But it's, it's true of all kind of great empires through history. It's true of Rome, it's true of the European colonial powers. It's very much been in our news the last few years. It's true of Britain, it's true of the United States, built on the blood of others. But at the same time, one of the great boasts of empires is that, well, they're involved in building a greater society. And that therefore all the barbarian conquered peoples well, they'll ultimately benefit under this sort of glorious civilization that we're building. But God isn't fooled by that rhetoric. He says there will be an accounting for blood. The civilization, the cities built and paid for by slaves, will burn. They will turn to ash in the fire. They will come to nothing, says God. And where is Babylon now? It's under the sand. The glory of empire will not last. It's the third way. The fourth way is really the most ugly. Uh, Verse 15 to 17. For shaming your neighbours, you shall be shamed. A common part of conquest, it seems, is the, the humiliation of the conquered. It's not enough to defeat them in battle. They're there for your entertainment. You get them drunk, you strip them naked, and you abuse them. And sadly, this kind of atrocity is not absent from our world today. We see it in conflicts everywhere across the globe. But God sees it too. And he doesn't forget what they've done. 
it will be visited back upon them. Verse 16, God too has a cup to give them, the cup of his wrath. It will come round to them, just as they shamed others in their nakedness, so their nakedness will be exposed for all to see. And it wasn't just the people that they stripped, it was the land too. The great forests of Lebanon were torn down for their building projects. The habitats destroyed, the the wild beasts were hunted for sport, verse 17. And God says, just as you overwhelmed the land and the creatures with the destruction of them, well, so you too will be overwhelmed. Then the last woe. Now notice that this last woe is given prominence, one by being last, uh, but also because the woe actually comes in the middle of the last um, uh, sort of phrasing and not at the beginning. That just indicates to us that this very last one, this is the most offensive thing to God, and it's their idolatry. Verse 18 to 20, For calling on idols, you will be silent before the Lord. The ancient battles were seen as representing battles in the spiritual realm. If my army beat your army, well then my God must be superior to your God. That's how it works. But during the Babylonian conquest, the temple in Jerusalem is destroyed and all the holy articles, the gold and the silver, it's all carried off by Nebuchadnezzar to put in the temple of his God. That's Daniel chapter 1. And so to the Babylonians and to the whole earth, it seems that Judah's God has been conquered, been defeated by their gods. But that's not so, is it? Because it's the God of Judah who's in control of the conquest. Babylon was his instrument. He spoke it into being. And in the end, it will be shown for what it is. See, though these idols may look impressive, they're ultimately empty and powerless, verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in its own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. See, the crowing voices of the people of Babylon as they praise their gods for the victory, well, they will one day fall silent before the Lord. The wicked will be punished as they deserve. That's the message of this chapter. The wicked will be punished as they deserve in God's time. That brings us to the final part of God's answer to Habakkuk. It's in verse 14 and verse 20. And the answer is this, that God will be vindicated and glorified in the end. Now, as we've gone through chapter 1, we've realised that well, part of Habakkuk's concern and in, in, in his complaint to God is, well, it's, it's his own survival, So he's looking at the judgment that's coming and he's thinking, well, how am I going to survive that? And how will other faithful people survive that? But actually, Habakkuk's a faithful believer. And like all faithful believers, 
He's concerned most of all for God's glory. He's concerned that God's name, well, it might be held in dishonour. It might be held in dishonour, one, for Judah's wickedness, but then two, for this coming conquest. See, we began by stating the question as well, that why does evil seem to go unpunished? And we tend to think of that from our perspective, but, but Habakkuk sees that from God's perspective too. We, and we see this concern most clearly in chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Because it seemed to Habakkuk that the wicked would prosper, first of all in Israel and then in Babylon, well, he's concerned that the nations might either think that God is evil himself, that he likes wickedness to prosper, or that God's powerless to stop it, that he can't stop evil happening uh, to his faithful people. But either way, Habakkuk's concerned that God's glory would be diminished that people would be able to accuse God of wrongdoing or of weakness. But God's answer, the answer that the righteous shall live by faith, that he'll rescue them, and that the wicked will be punished in the end as they deserve, and that therefore in the end when his answer is fulfilled against Babylon and, and, against, uh, and in Christ and then at the return of Christ, God will be vindicated and glorified in all the earth. When his answer is really seen, he will get the glory. And we saw that in verse, 13, uh, verse 14. God said, for the earth will be filled with his glory shall be known by all. Saying, Habakkuk, you don't need to worry that I won't be glorified. When my answer comes through, I'll get all the glory in all the earth. And Habakkuk, you don't need to worry that people will say things about me that, aren't, that isn't true. I will be vindicated. When my plan comes to fruition, no one will be able to speak a word against me. Verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Why does evil seem to go unpunished? Wait and see. The righteous shall live by faith. Trust in Christ, says God, and you shall live through the judgment to come. Why does evil seem to go unpunished? Wait and see, says God. The wicked will be punished as they deserve in the end. Christian believer, if you will wait for it, then in the end you will see the earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and all peoples will be silent before him. In the meantime... Let us live by faith. Let's pray. Lord God, these are big things. Um, In chapter 1 we heard that this would be something that we would not believe if we were told. And Lord, your plan is beyond us. It is mysterious to us. And yet it is wonderful, and we thank you that we can trust you. We thank you that in the end, the wicked will get what they deserve. 
And we thank you that the, those who cling to you in faith will be saved. And Lord, we know that um, by uh, the way we are, we know by our own hearts that we do, do deserve your judgment. And so we thank you that you have saved us, not because of the works that we've done, not because we've kept your law, but simply because we've trusted in the Lord Jesus, who has died for our sins in our place. Thank you that by faith the righteous are saved. And so, Lord, we trust you as we wait for your Son to return. In Jesus' name, amen.